Mitty Gandy all trying to help each other down the hill so that nobody fell on the way back to their car. And it just struck me as that that's a picture there of, of those who are all helping each other. And of course, we were trying to make sure James and Catherine got back to their car safely. Uh, I walked up behind them and made them nervous because they thought I was going to touch someone and they might all go tumbling down like dominoes. But uh, it just struck me. And I wish I had taken a picture of that moment because it was so, so wonderful. So I did that, and we were there, and then I got done and headed back to Hannah's house, and it was not that long. I mean, it was a very short service there, and headed back uh, to uh, Saudi, to Hickson here, to, to be there at Hannah's house. And when I got back, there was about this much room left in the back of the truck. Uh, all those boys and dads and men who had come to help were already almost done, and I know that Hannah was there, and, and her dad was there with the truck, and they were very appreciative. And it just struck me on a day like that how great this congregation is at so many things, uh, not just in moments like that, but it's wonderful to be here and to be together with you. And we look forward to the lesson here in a moment, uh, lunch, if you can stay and be a part of that with us, and certainly our afternoon service as well. Uh, some of you will recognize one of the men in this picture. Some of you may recognize both of the men. Some of you may recognize neither one. But if you recognize both of them, then this is a, a sort of a meta picture, as they say today, because on the left-hand side is David Farr, and on the right-hand side is David Farr, wearing a t-shirt with David Farr on the t-shirt. And so it's kind of one of those things that you really have kind of bend your mind if you, you know. But many of you know David Farr on the right-hand side. He's David J. Farr is what he goes by, and he's often called David the Younger. David's dad was not named David Farr, so it's not a junior or a third or anything like that. But he goes by the name David Farr, and of course he was at St. Elmo for several years and brought his family here to Vacation Bible School and things, and, and then has recently moved down to Orlando to work with the Concord Street Church of Christ there in Orlando. And I would highly recommend if you're ever down in Orlando on vacation, Universal or Disney or someplace down there, you stop in and, and see them and the good folks at Concord Street there. Uh, but over the last few years, David has become uh, one of my very best friends, certainly from a preaching perspective, but also just a friend perspective and leaning on one another. We share a lot of common things in life and not only our profession, but our families and, and children and that kind of thing. The man on the left, you may know, because he was very well known as a preacher uh, for many, many years. He preached in about 17 states. He wrote seven books. We've not looked at a spiritual sword here in a while on Wednesday night, but if you have ever opened a spiritual sword, and we did, we've studied them before in our Wednesday night class, more than likely at least one of those articles was written by David R. Farr. He preached for at least 35 years in the, at the Charlotte Avenue congregation in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and then even as he did not preach anymore, he served as an elder, and he served for over 50 years at that one congregation. We lost David Farr about 16 days ago from this life, but he left behind not only his grandchildren and, and a great family, but a great legacy. And he also left behind, of course, a lot of his material, a lot of his sermons. And so David, uh, the younger, has inherited a lot of that, and he was looking through those and kind of been looking through and writing down different things and making notes of sermons he might like to preach. And, and he told me the other day, he said, I found one that sounds like something you would preach. And he said, it sounded like, it, it sound like something you could use. So he sent it to me, and he said, I think you ought to use it. And I'm thankful not only to my friend David, but certainly for the legacy of David Farr and the life that he lived here. And as I was thinking about that lesson, I thought it'd be wonderful for us to encourage ourselves with those thoughts. Uh, just a note on the t-shirt there, it, it is a, a t-shirt with David's face on it, and it says, Making America Great Since 1937. Uh, when he died a, a few days ago, he was 86 years old. And this was some t-shirts they had made at his 80th birthday uh, in 2017 to honor him. And we're thankful for 
again, how much he did in this life and being able to even look at one of his lessons this morning. You know, John chapter 14 is well known because of the first six verses. If you opened up there, you'll notice, and, and I have underlined in my Bible verse number six, right? You remember the, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and, and the life. Before that, in the first four verses, he talks about going and preparing a place. And, and he's just washed the disciples' feet. We're nearing the end of his life here on this earth. And, and we realize this is a momentous occasion, but... We don't often go past verse number six because of what, how powerful those first six verses are there. In verse number eight, though, we see Philip make a statement. And Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. You see, Philip makes a significant request here. He makes a, a comment to, to just that's plain. It's, it's a wise thing. He says to Jesus, we really want to know what God is like. Lord, show us the Father. Jesus answers him in verse number 9 and says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? You may have had one of your children before or maybe someone that you've taught in Bible class to ask, what is God like? And it might be answered sometimes that God is, is bigger and he's more powerful than, than everything. An answer to that question might be that God is the God who gives us everything that we could need. Somebody else might say, well, he is the God that expects us to do right. If a child were to ask the question, to say, what is God like? We could probably give several answers. But what does Jesus say here in this moment? It's simple and it's direct. But he says, we could sum it up by saying, God is like me. Or really, as he says it, we could turn it around and say, he, he's saying, I am like God. And if we were to ask the question, what is it that we see most clearly in Jesus that we could say that we see in God? Well, John says it another way in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, when at the end of that verse, he says it very succinctly, that God is love. We sing it in many different songs. There are some that have become more popular with our young people and devotional type songs. And, and we sing the one called The Greatest Commands where we say that. There are other songs in our songbook where we sing, God is love. When we think about this, we realize that we can most clearly see and understand about God in Christ that God is love. We want to take a look at three main points this morning and then we're going to kind of try to conclude it by comparing two passages together. But there are three things that we can notice about the love of God. If you have an outline in front of you from the bulletin, you see our title is The God Who Loves. See, we appreciate that, right? We don't like discipline sometimes. We're going to get there in a moment. We don't like when our relationships go awry or wrong or we have problems. We enjoy love and loving one another and receiving love. Well, God certainly is love. He is the God who loves. But let's notice three things, not only about God, but also about Jesus. And as Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We recognize that these things show us through Jesus about God. Number one. Jesus shows us that God is a father whose love never lets us down. God is a father whose love never lets us down. 
When people have problems, you have problems, don't you? I know you do, because I do. We all do. Maybe your life is pretty good right now. Maybe things are going pretty well, but, but we have problems. When we have problems, they may be, we may be inclined to think that God hasn't come through for us. It's tempting to think that way. One of the things that happens sometimes in an assembly like this is we're here together, is we all wear our Sunday best, as we say. We all put on our smiles and we show up and we laugh and we have a good time together and we think that everyone has it figured out, that everyone is, is perfect and doesn't have any problems. And then when we have problems, we get frustrated with God and we feel like it's his problem that we have problems. And maybe he hasn't done his part. Maybe he hasn't come through for us. Sometimes our problems may come because of a genuine tragedy. We hate, we hate cancer. We hate death and sickness. We hate car accidents and, and houses that burn and, and many other things that happen that are truly just tragedies, accidents that take place. But sometimes doubts about God come from other things, from, from mishaps or, or temporary disappointments or other things that happen to us that we look at God and we get frustrated and say, why can't my life be good all the time? I want to serve you. Why are you letting me down? The problem is this comes from a tendency in our human lives to be self-centered. We take God out of the first place. We take God out of the middle of our lives and we put ourselves there and God is just one of the things on the periphery, right? We preached a lesson, it's probably been three or four years ago now, and we talked about compartmentalization and how what we do is we make our lives, our lives like a, a dresser, right, in our, in our bedroom. And we put God in one drawer and we put our clothes in another, we put our job in another and our family in another, and we use the example of a wagon wheel instead of God being the center of that wheel and everything else coming out from that. What we do is we put ourselves in the center and then we look at God and wonder why he is continuing to let us down. What we need to do is think about the big picture, right? We need to realize that all we see is just a very small fragment, even in the moment. And even if you're dealing with something that you've been dealing with for several months or even years, it is still just a fragment of the big picture that God can see. He sees it. He sees that big picture, and while all we see is a little part, we are sometimes then tempted to blame him when there's a little hiccup, right? When our little part of the world is not working exactly like we want it to. If you are ever tempted to think that God has let you down, remember this. Remember that he never promised to save you from trouble, only to save you in trouble. He didn't promise to save us from trouble. He promised to save us in trouble. There are so many passages that we don't have time to look at this morning from the New Testament that remind us that he said he would be with us. It doesn't mean that he'd keep us from whatever that problem would be. If you have a Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 5 for just a moment. Hebrews 13 and verse number 5. I want to ask you to turn there and I want to ask you to look at it and see what it says. And there's a couple of parts here, and really this is a great section of Scripture that talks about several things. Verse 4 talks about marriage and the marriage bed. Verse 5 says, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. For he, that's God, himself, has said, and here's a phrase you know, I will never leave you nor 
forsake you. Now the reason I ask you to turn and look at it, I'm not putting it on the screen here yet, is because in the Greek, and I tell you I'm not a Greek scholar even myself, and, and you wouldn't see this, in the original language there are actually five, and we're gonna, we are going to put them on the screen, but five negatives built into this text to help us emphasize this point. If you could read, if we could read the original language and these five negatives, here is what it would look like. I will never, no, never leave thee. No, never, ever forsake thee. It's the same thing, but maybe it takes on a little bit more meaning for us as we think about five times it's built in that God would remind us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. This might be a way of paraphrasing it here, but it helps us to understand exactly the point that God is a father whose love never lets us down. Of course, this is seen in Jesus, right? Question, did Jesus ever let anyone down? Think about it for a second, because we might say very quickly the answer is no, because we feel like that's the right answer. But do you remember specifically in Mark chapter 10, verse 22, Mark 10, 22, when Jesus has the interaction with the man that we call the rich young ruler, right? And Jesus tells him what he needs to do. And verse 22 tells us that this rich young ruler was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful. Now, if we read this in our human glasses through our lenses, we might think that Jesus let this man down. But here's the thing. Some people were sometimes disappointed in him. Right, We have the vision of the rich young ruler running to Jesus, excited. Jesus says, here's what you need to do. And he says, I've done those things. And he says, well, here's what you really need to do. You need to forsake everything, sell all that you have, and come and follow me. And those drooping shoulders, that, that stooped head, as he realizes he's not willing to give up all those things, Jesus didn't let him down, but he is disappointed because he was not what he wanted. He, he didn't say what he wanted him to say. And here's the thing, some people still are disappointed in Jesus. It's not that he is letting them down, but that they are disappointed in him. But for those people who trust him, he always lifted them up. He never let them down. And the same can be said for us even this day. In his notes in the outline that was shared with me, uh, David Farr tells the story of a lady that he had met in a hospital elevator. And he said that, you know, she told him of her husband's condition and she made this statement. But God is going to get us through this. You see, when we think about this first point, everyone wants to hear about the love of God. They want to be assured that God cares for them and he is going to help them. But there is something else that we need to know this morning. Secondly, as we think about the love of God. Though the love of God never lets us down, it also never lets us off. Now, this is where it goes from the feel-good fun part to where everybody accuses the preacher of stepping on their toes, right? He never lets us off. And the thing about it is these first two are extremely connected. They are truly connected. They go together. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse number 13, 2 Timothy 2, 13, Paul would write, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 13. The New King James says, If we are faithless, 
He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What people believe or don't believe about God doesn't change anything about who he is. That's the point of this verse. If we are faithless, he is still faithful. If we have 119 people here this morning and next week we have 118 people because someone has walked away from the faith, he is still faithful. The point to be made is that God's love does not make him any less holy and holiness cannot, simply cannot tolerate sin. That God's love will not let us off means that he will not let us get by with sin. What happens, though, is that sometimes people want to slander, if you'll allow me to say it that way, to make libel God, to libel against God, or to slander against him. When what they do is they presume that God's love makes sin all right. And it cancels out any consequences. You think about a woman who breaks up a home and a husband who deserts his family so that they can then be together. And what they say is, well, God understands. We love each other and God understands this. This is slander against God and his love. A mother grieves over her son's lifestyle, but says, well, at least God is a forgiving God. And maybe someone even here this morning is thinking, I know I need to repent. I know that I need to get my life right with God. But if something happens to me, well, I'll just trust his grace, right? Because that will be enough because God is a loving and gracious God. Amen. He is, but he cannot accept sin. God's love is not a love that lets us get by with sin. We think about Paul saying so simply, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. May it not be so. There should not be a chance that we should keep sinning so that we can continue to receive more grace. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 7, there is a principle that is a biblical principle, right? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It goes all the way forward to 2023. I talk a lot about us, you know, having a garden and starting a garden. And we, we still in 2023 live off of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Because what does it say? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, I hope you know, I'm being a little facetious, right? I don't think God is talking about my tomato plants right here. That's not exactly what he is saying. However, the principle of sowing and reaping is true when it comes to the things that we plant in the ground and the things that come forth from seed and when it comes to our spiritual condition as well. It was told a few years ago that a, a certain state legislator tried to pass a law to change the value of pie. Right, you remember pie from math class? He tried to change the value of pie to make it an even number. And he wanted to make it easier for kids to do their homework. Or another story, which I could not verify, and again, it's kind of used in the outline here, but, but of a Washington senator, at least an illustration that's told, who was standing in the Capitol when something fell and struck him in the head. And as a friend, friend ran to offer him help, he said, go into the Senate and have the law of gravity changed. Right, that's, that's what we're talking about here. 
especially when it comes to Galatians 6, 7. No more than we can change the value of pi or no more than we can change the law of gravity. We cannot change that whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Look real quickly in your Old Testament at Numbers chapter 23. Numbers 23 and verse number 30, excuse me, Numbers 32, 32 verse 23. 32 verse 23. Here, when we think about the children of Israel and the things that they've been going through, both their their faithfulness, but also a lot of, of unfaithfulness in the wilderness. Verse 23 says, But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Maybe that's one of the scariest passages in Scripture, right? written to the children of Israel, but yet still true today that we can be sure our sins will find us out. Whatever we sow, that we will also reap. We cannot change that any more than we can change mathematics or science. We love the story in John chapter 8 about Jesus forgiving the adulterous woman. Right, a lot of people point to that. John chapter 8, several verses there. But don't forget in verse number 11, John 8 and verse 11, that at the end of that occasion, or towards the end there, as Jesus is talking with this woman, and of course what happens is, the people who have brought her to Jesus, who are accusing her of sin, they, they leave. And so what happens in our, our Twitter world today and in social media is anybody who wants to judge or make a judgment or point out sin, the mob says, oh, you need to leave them alone. Jesus says that you can't point out somebody else's sin. But remember in verse number 11 that Jesus also tells that woman, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. You see, we can make a judgment. That's a, a whole other lesson and a whole other story for another time. But also we realize that we cannot continue in our sin. In fact, here, that requisite, that repentance was a requisite to forgiveness. That Jesus would say to her, go and sin no more. If you want to receive forgiveness, you have to repent. You can't just keep continuing in sin. God's love is a love that will never let us down. But be sure as well, the message of God's word is that it will never let us off from the sin that we also sometimes get ensnared in. Jesus shows us a God who loves to forgive. But as long as he is God... And as long as he is a holy God, sin will not be forgiven in those who do not repent. It will not let us off. We know again the words of Jesus, Luke 13, 3. If I'm not mistaken, it's usually one of the ones on the slide at the end of the lesson we'll get to in just a moment. Luke 13, 3. Unless you repent, you will perish. It's that simple. We've got to repent. No one can continue in their sin and just expect God to be gracious in that moment. That's not the message of God in the Old Testament. That's not the message of Jesus in the New Testament. God's love never lets us down. Praise be to God for that. It makes us a little more uncomfortable, but God's love will also never let us off. This is a stern reality, and it ought to cause us to think soberly. But our third and final point this morning is that God is a Father whose love will never let us go. And by the way, this is not some kind of attempt in order to say, well, let's have two good things and only one bad thing. No, all these are true. They're all true. But God is a Father whose love will never let us go. I think there's a reason why so many people love Luke chapter 15. 
We talked about parables in here recently. Of course, the ladies were not with us as they were having their class. But the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 was one way that Jesus taught this point right here. That his love will never let us go. The father loved the prodigal son from the beginning. The boy who chose to move from home to a world of sin, the father never stopped loving him. And when he was coming home, without a doubt, without any kind of preface, absolutely the father ran and greeted him. Because God's love will never let us go. God's love keeps on giving and it keeps on loving in spite of everything. We know from Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10 that Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. And here's the thing. He is still seeking. Not in the same way that he was there in Luke 19 because he's not on the earth, but he has left us as his church, as his bride, as his disciples to go forth and to seek and to save the lost. Maybe you have turned him down many times. Maybe you have shut the door in his face. Maybe you have said, maybe not even with your words, but certainly with your thoughts or your actions, maybe you've said, I don't care. Maybe you think you've gone too far, that God's love is not big enough for you because you've done too much. But God loves you as much now as he did in the innocence of your birth because God's love will never let us go. I don't know if you have the opportunity to turn between two passages. Some of you are making notes, but we're going to look at two passages to conclude our lesson this morning. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 and John three sixteen. I don't have the bulletin in front of me, but I think I tried to, to title it for you. Paul and Jesus or Paul and John and a look at the love of God and the love of Christ. Something along those lines. You may recall the beautiful passage in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, where Paul says that we should be able to comprehend. He's written these things. God has loved us that we would be strengthened so that we would understand several things about the love of God. And those things are paralleled with John chapter 3 and verse number 16. Let's notice them very quickly here together before we conclude. Number one, Paul talks about the breadth of God's love. John, or Jesus says, John records for us, that God so loved the whole world. How big is God's love? What is the breadth of God's love, we might say? Well, it's the whole world. Is it the people who are in Soddy Daisy, Tennessee? Absolutely. Is it the people who live in, in other places in the world that we don't even agree with, like, like California or New York or any other state that we want to pick out? Absolutely. Is it people who live in China or Russia? Absolutely. Is it people who live in Haiti? Absolutely. God's love, the breadth of it is for God so loved the whole world. But we might also say in connection with that, the width is that He gave or the length, excuse me there, the length, I don't know if you have enough blanks for that. I realize I may have typed that in wrong there. The length is expressed in that he so loved the world that he gave. He gave. I don't know if you've ever used the example with your children before about sticking your arms out right, saying, I love you this much. Or some people will even go so far as to use Jesus in that illustration, right, that he loved us this much and, and sort of mimic him hanging there on the cross. But the the length of it is such that he 
was willing to give. You see, this is a great illustration. That's fine. I, I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do this. But he was willing to give. He so loved the world that he gave. The depth, we might say, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 18, the depth is that it reaches down to the depth of perishing man. You know what we do is we, we sometimes look up or we point up to God, right? And there's, I, there's nothing wrong with that in a sense. We're, we're raising God up. And, and so when we think about God in heaven and we sometimes look up and we think about looking down at mankind, the depth of God's love is that he reaches out to perishing man. You know that illustration of reaching your arms out like that? I mean, even if we kind of turn sideways, right, and go, go up and down with it, doesn't even begin to examine, it doesn't be, be, even be able to begin to explain to us that distance, that depth. For God so loved the world that he gave his son in reaching down to perishing man. And the height, of course, is that he can, God's love can raise us to heaven, to eternal life. I suppose the thing that maybe we should be saying is that not so much that God loves everyone. We, we know that. We could list off the states or the countries or, or whatever you want to do and say, yes, God loves everyone. But maybe the point this morning is better stated that he loves you. It's easy for the preacher to stand here and say, God loves the world. It's easy for us to talk about people in other places. But sometimes when we bring it home and going to back to, as we said a moment ago, sometimes it's what I've done and I don't feel like I've earned it or deserve it then we feel like maybe he doesn't really love us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that we can believe in him, that we can be baptized for the remission of our sins, and that we can be added to the church so that we can have a home in heaven one day. The God who loves, he loves us so much. He loves us so, so much that he will not let us down and he will not let us go. But one reason why we extend heaven's invitation each time that we're together is because we need to also realize he will never let us off. We are human and we make mistakes and we sin, but the love of God is there. The blood of Christ was shed. And as we are about to sing this song of encouragement in just a moment, we have an opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never been baptized for the remission of your sins so that the Lord could add you to his church. We sing to encourage you that you would make that great decision. And we always try to emphasize as well, if you have questions, not only about this slide, but the verses that are up there, or what we're saying when we say that this is God's simple plan of salvation, please don't hesitate to let us know. Talk to one of the elders. You can talk to me, certainly. Someone, we would love to study with you. Maybe you're here this morning, but you've wandered away. Brother or sister, you've been added to the church, but we know that that doesn't mean that your spot is guaranteed. We can sin and mess up and, and turn away. And maybe you're here this morning as a Christian, but you are struggling in some way. Maybe it's a public sin that you'd like to come to the front. One of our elders will be here in just a moment to receive you, to pray with you and for you. God's love extends to lost mankind. God's love continues to be extended to his sons and daughters, his children. We are thankful for that this morning and for the opportunity to be right with him, even now as we stand together and as we sing.